Ladies and gentlemen, feast your ears upon the new Gen Green show, starring new Gen Green. Powered by the Young Adults Fighting Tobacco Coalition. Good evening, everyone. Uh, I'm sure everyone is doing well. This is your co-host, Johnny, here. And today we have an amazing episode in order uh, for this week. Today we are going to have on the Deputy Policy Director for the Coalition for Clean Air of Los Angeles, as well as uh, he's also a longtime staffer and friend of Senators Fran Pavle and Alex Padilla. This is Mr. Chris Chavez. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me here today. It's a, it's a pleasure to be on. Wonderful. And now, uh, how are my other co-hosts doing tonight? I'm doing pretty good, Johnny. It's been an interesting weekend, to say the least. Nothing really happened, but it's been interesting. Uh, I'm into that new show, Squid Game, if anyone else knows what that's about. But, um... Yeah, I'm doing good. How about you, Chelsea? I have heard of that show. Haven't watched it yet, but it's on my list. Um, I'm doing good. Just busy, busy, like always. But I'm excited for tonight and get to talk to everybody. So I'm excited. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Um, I just got back from a, a, a youth program. And so it was uh, really fun to talk to these native California people. Uh, it, it was after uh, we went to like church youth group. And so we were back out, we have all this food. And of course this is in the evening. So raccoons come out and they're circling the food. And I go like, hey, uh, I, I remember, you know, back where I'm from, uh, we had this issue occasionally with uh, rabid dogs. And they went like, what? What are you talking about, John? And I was like, oh, yeah, it's my Midwestern thing. So <laughs> I got to, like, scare the bejesus out of these Northern California kids. Well, not just, just California kids who have neither lived in, like, the boondocks of California nor the Midwest. And, like, oh, yeah, like, I just have this issue where I just run into... Uh, like loose dogs i even got bit once and so i got oh, to wow. like, communicate that and they're like oh my god john do, do you midwesterners live in the stone age and i go like yes the why else do you think i'm on a tobacco control program <laughs> now to the main program it's so wonderful to have you here mr chavez uh before we get into tonight's uh material on uh, clean air and the fight against big tobacco. Uh, could you give us a little background on yourself for our, for, uh, our audience? Sure, uh, happy to do so. Uh, so again, uh, this is uh, Chris Chavez, Deputy Policy Director at Coalition for Clean Air. Uh, I'm based in the LA area and actually live in uh, the community of Long Beach, uh, which is a large city uh, to the south of the city of Los Angeles. Uh, for myself, uh, I work on uh, disadvantaged communities, uh, electric vehicle deployment, uh, and really doing a lot of advocacy and lobbying to uh, state agencies, local and state elected officials, and so on. Uh, so that's kind of my responsibilities in a nutshell. Most of our work is on the transportation sector, 
uh, particularly as it relates to uh, goods movement freight, as well as uh, the uh, passenger vehicle side of things as well. Uh, so that's really kind of where our bread and butter is. But I think the fortunate thing in my job is that I'm able to help work on also some of the equity issues uh, that are affecting our communities, especially from somebody who grew up uh, in a community that is disproportionately burdened by pollution, uh, disproportionately burdened by socioeconomic vulnerabilities, uh, and having experienced those myself, I, I think it's a way of being able to address uh, some of these longstanding issues that I've experienced in my community. Impressive. I, I can't wait to make a record like that for myself. Now, um, you, you mentioned uh, your own personal experience mm -hmm. uh, that, that really kind of grounds you into, you, you do a lot of advocacy, you do a lot of good work. Um, if I can pry, what was this like epiphany for you out of your own experience that really made you want to go and uh, be a member of the uh, Coalition for Clean Air? Yeah, so... I've long had an interest in uh, politics and policy. It's actually funny talking to Yaft today. Um, so I was thinking back, I was thinking back, like what was the thing that really brought me into an interest in politics? And I always kind of go back to the 2000 election, uh, the whole Bush v. Gore sort of situation. Okay. Uh, but then I think back even a little bit further, and I think the, the first ever uh, letter that I wrote to an elected official was when I was about eight, nine years old, of course, my dad's help. Uh, and it was a letter on tobacco regulations to then Vice President Al Gore. Uh, and so we kind of come full circle today, uh, you know, on, on this podcast. And that's kind of where I think um, really I kind of got involved in some aspect of, um, of politics. Uh, when, I, when I was in high school, so again, like around 2001, Okay. Uh, you know, you had you, the aftermath of the 2000 election, and then you also had September 11th taking place the same year, which resulted in, you know, the wars in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, the, uh, then which led into the immigrants uh, right debate, and that's where I really kind of got passionate about. But I've always had this interest, this inkling in environmental issues in the background. Uh, when I was a kid, I used to play games like SimCity, things like that. Uh, yes. And I would always try to have a very clean city. That was always a big priority to me is low air pollution, low water pollution. And uh, so that was always something that was that was important to me, but I didn't really think of it professionally. Uh, I did student government in college uh, and did a lot of advocacy for the CSU system uh, through an organization called, uh, well, first the Associated Students, the Student Government on Campus at Cal State Long Beach. Uh, I was uh, president at the Cal State Long Beach Student Government. And then there is a statewide student government, a statewide advocacy organization, California State Student Association. I was president for that for a year and uh, got to actually lobby on bills and legislation, both in Sacramento and Washington, D.C. Wow. After that, went to Sacramento, as you pointed out, first worked for Senator Alex Padilla uh, for a year as a Senate fellow. Uh, worked on a couple of bills and uh, decided to stick around longer than I was anticipating. Worked for Senator Pavley for uh, four years. And she was a big environmental champion. In fact, California's clean car, car law 
was written by her. Uh, no the yeah, the the California Global Warming Solutions Act was written by her. So a really strong environmental pedigree uh, in her work. Uh, but I was actually not the environmental staffer uh, for for her office. I did education and transportation and the state budget. Okay. So finally, when I moved back to LA after she retired due to term limits, I uh, was looking for a job in this. You know, this position opened up with Coalition for Clean Air, and I saw it. I remember working with them when I was uh, in Senator Papley's office. I said, okay, they're, they're a good group. I like them. Applied, and it was between this and another job that was out in the Inland Empire, and I felt that this was a better avenue. I'd be able to stay closer to home, and uh, the rest has been history. And, uh, yeah, it's just uh, it's been a very good experience. And, again, being able not to just say, let's address some of these big-picture environmental climate issues that dominate the news cycle. Let's see how it's affecting people who live in my neighborhood, uh, who live where my family lives in, in the city or in the neighborhood of Wilmington, uh, which is by all the refineries and ports, uh, who work in East LA. And I think that's where I get the pride in my work from, is being able to not necessarily speak for those communities because as a mainstream environmental organization, you don't speak for a community, but being able to try to be as much as we can an ally in addressing some of these uh, environmental injustices. That sounds really cool and really impressive. Like, honestly, it's, it's, I think it's so awesome that we do have positions open for people mm -hmm. to, you know, be part of a, you know, position where you push for cleaner air. Mm -hmm. And uh, I totally, I also played, uh, you mentioned playing, um, Sim City. Sim City a little bit back yeah. and I totally yeah. I used to play that too that was such a good game so I totally get it Be uh, between building cities and uh, dying of dysentery on Oregon Trail <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah I'm just yeah. in awe of you man to like your entire life has really just been about using policy and community development to pe make people's lives mm -hmm. better and that is just so amazing to me mm -hmm. Yeah, well, especially I, since I mean everyone everyone breathes air. Like literally everyone on this planet breathes air. So it's you know, I, I can't imagine you have much pushback from people when you say like, Oh, you know, I'm the coal I'm part of the coalition for clean air. It's like who, who I want to right? make sure you're not breathing poison. Yeah. 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 The right mind would be opposed to that, you know. Yeah. So, so first of all, thank you. Um, I, you know, I, I appreciate that. I, I would just, you know, I, I would want to emphasize that I think the people who really do a lot of the on the ground hard work are the community organizers, are the, the, the folks who work directly with communities like Wilmington or East LA or San Bernardino, uh, because that those are the real environmental justice folks, because they're actually getting a community who's been suffering from this and trying to activate them, trying to mobilize them from the outside. Um, you know, they they really deserve a, a lot of, perhaps most of the credit in terms of where a lot of California's air quality policy has gone, especially within the last five years. Um, but in terms of what you were talking about, about opposition, um, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. Most people, you tell them, I, need, I even have family that works in the, the oil industry, and it's like, you know, we, we, we have some friendly banter, but it's never, you know, everybody agrees that they want clean air. Um, mm -hmm. 
but when when it comes down to it is how and that how is always a sticking point and when you're dealing with oil industry lobbyists when you're dealing with uh you know with polluters uh they will always look at uh the cost of well this pollution control device will cost x amount this will cost us x amount this will mean x number of jobs will be lost and that is always where the challenge and then once you start getting into the jobs aspect of it is when you start getting labor involved and our, our the environmental relationship with labor is always true mm-hmm yeah so not to jump ahead um a little bit on our questions but uh since you touched on you know oil uh what are your mm-hmm. thoughts on the recent southern california oil spill certainly and um i'm actually not that far away from it i again i'm in the city oh, of God. long beach uh, the oil spill is uh two cities down two or three cities down from us because there's long beach there's seal beach where my mom lives uh sunset beach and then huntington beach uh, so we're actually pretty close to it, and and Long Beach has a number of oil islands, oil rigs, or off well, offshore drilling equipment, uh, as as much of California. You know, it, it, it's concerning. So you're going to have a massive impact when it comes to water quality. Uh, already, you're seeing uh, dead uh, and very sick animals washing up on shore. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it's kind of sad because just last week I was at the beach with my, a friend for his birthday and we actually saw a dolphin out in the water. And this was over in L.A. County, not, not quite Orange County. Um, and th- that's been on my mind because, you know, there are other animals, there are lots of other animals uh, throughout all of this area. Uh, and, and, of course, the oceans are very important uh, e- e- uh, ecological uh, system. Uh, but there's also an air quality issue as well. So a lot of crude oil, a lot of the folks that live in those communities, uh, which are, let's be honest, they're, they're affluent communities, they're, they're wealthy communities, uh, have complained about the odor, have complained about fumes. Uh, so there's also going to be an environmental impact in terms of air quality. Uh, so that, this is actually a big problem for, for locally and for California. Um, and I think for, for us, what we've, you know, what we've said online is, look, this is a big reason why we need to accelerate the move away from fossil fuels uh, as, as quickly as possible. Um, and, and, and really, you know, the, the, yeah, it's just, it's, it's a big problem. Wow. Well, I didn't, uh, again, I'm the, I'm the internal immigrant here, so mm-hmm. I still have a hard time even pinning stuff like this down on the map, but... Mm-hmm. Like, you can just look outside in that part of California and be like, mm-hmm. oh, there's the massive oil rig outside Yeah, that, that's destroying the ocean. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Or if you go into the communities of Wilmington and Carson, uh, there's this one area uh, in Wilmington, Figueroa Place, where on one, one side is a freeway. Okay. Then you have some houses. And then the other side is an oil refinery. Are you and, kidding? Yeah. And it's... Uh, and then you look at the, the the information from the state saying, oh, this is one of our most polluted communities in the, in the state. It's like, yeah, really? No, no wonder. You don't say. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And actually, the so the, the state of California puts out a map called the uh, Calenvirus Screen. And that looks okay. at socioeconomic burden and pollution vulnerabilities. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the bulk of of disadvantaged communities by that definition are actually in Southern California in LA County. 
our, our local air quality regulator, the uh, South Coast Air Quality Management District, they also do a map call or a study called the Multiple Air Toxics Exposure Study, and it measures relative cancer risk across their jurisdiction, which is urban LA County, urban San Bernardino, urban Riverside, and all of Orange County. And there is a very, very strong correlation between where people live and their risk for cancer. I'm actually in one of the higher risk places because I'm downwind of the 710 freeway, which is a major goods movement or goods court or movement corridor. Uh, and um, that the 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 air toxic cancer risk in my neighborhood is higher relative to the rest of uh, their, the the uh, South Coast AQMD's jurisdiction. There was a piece that I actually read from you before uh, having you come onto this program, but I believe this was called a diesel death zone. Mm-hmm. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Well, that, so that's, that's a pretty fair yeah. word for it, I would say. So the the diesel death zone, and that was a term that long predates my involvement. I'm, I'm not claiming originality over that. Uh, but diesel exhaust, specifically diesel particulate matter, is a known carcinogen, um, much like how tobacco smoke is a, a known carcinogen. Uh, and uh, it, you know, diesel, according to the Air Resources Board, California Air Resources Board, uh, is comprised of 40 different chemicals or has 40 different chemicals that are carcinogenic. I actually think, in fairness, I actually think tobacco smoke has even more than diesel exhaust. Uh, don't quote me on that, but uh, uh, I'm not saying that's a definitive quote, but I think that's, I was look, doing a comparison between the two, and I was like, wow, tobacco smoke doesn't look that good either, because you've yeah. got things like polonium and stuff like that that's tobacco smoke. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's you know, it, so kind of getting back to the whole idea of the, like a diesel death zone. So, for example, I'm the, the zip code I'm in has about a six to eight year shorter lifespan than the eastern side of the city. Um, now, the eastern side of the city has a, a freeway there, too. But we also have to contend with the ports. We also have to contend with the oil refineries. We have to contend with the rail yards, uh, oil and gas operations, things like that. And so you have all these things cumulatively adding up in addition to lack of health care access lack of food access, lack of, of uh, gainful employment. Uh, and all those things wear down on the quality of life and life expectancy of uh, people who live in these communities. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think this, unless my uh, colleagues want to touch up on this, this is the most telling example of what uh, inequality in America looks mm-hmm. like. This yeah. is the... I, I remember uh, I used to have a professor who was from a uh, uh, segregated part of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And so, like, he he couldn't quite understand why, you know, there would still be a lot of people frustrated about race issues. And it's like, what? Mm-hmm. Like, okay, we, we made redlining illegal in the 90s. Everything should be fine now. Hmm. That he that you can make something illegal, but you can't like unbuild buildings, un completely go and reconfigure entire cities, or like give back people's childhoods where they had where they like grew up in these environments where like what you're saying 
they grew up by a freeway, <laughs> the docks, the oil refinery. Yeah. I can like I can definitely see why the US has like some of the lowest standard of living in the first world. And yeah. it's because of deadly inequality like this. Oh so, I, I, yeah. Yeah. Wow. And, and, and to that point, I, I would argue that the bulk, at least within California, but I'm sure elsewhere as well, that the bulk of today's disadvantaged communities were redline communities a century ago. I know Wilmington was. So Wilmington, again, by the ports, by the refineries, by a lot of goods movement corridors, they were a redline community back then. That's that's where my family, uh, when when they, uh, so I know that when, when they immigrated up to Mexico, uh, they went to Orange County first and moved to Wilmington to work at the, the, the ports and the, the canneries. And it's uh, yeah. Back then, it was it, there was a there's a, an amazing website called the Mapping Inequality Project by University of Richmond uh, that looks at the redline communities. And if you just look at which communities were redlined back then and what disadvantaged communities are now, it's uh, it's uh, kind of discouraging to be perfectly honest. Well, yeah, it's um, it's sort of like we've made these. I think I think someone way smarter than me said it said it like this. So we designed our cities in uh, let let's say with the help of these massive titans of industry, like the it's because of the lobbying interest and because of the economic power of Ford, GM, etc. That we have cities built around cars. It's because of blank or blank interests that we have cities built around this. If we have, if we have a country like how it was a hundred years ago, our values and our customs and our systems are going to be ingrained in the very way that we design our cities. Mm -hmm. Our cities are going to be designed to have slums for cheap labor and expendable labor while we will have our, our wonderful gated off communities mm -hmm. where their bosses live and where their bankers live. Right. And just to add on, like, I think this really is just telling in the fact that it's 2021 and still the fact that there are these communities that are in, that leads voter lifespans just by living there just shows the inequality that is just so ingrained into our society right mm -hmm. now that really needs to be addressed it's just amazing to me that it we that it's gone on this long um but at least like you're doing something about it and your group is doing something about it so that's amazing yeah um no and and that's not from from what i was saying you know that doesn't necessarily denigrate or minimize what California has done. So California, especially during the, the prior administration, was basically the default global leader representing the United States. Uh, you know, and California has put a lot of ambitious targets, they put a lot of, you know, have made a lot of ambitious commitments. And I, I think to, to the agencies that have been involved in this process, their, their credit, to their credit, I think you know, there, there is a genuine interest and effort in trying to address 
some of these issues, in part because of law. Uh, some of the legislatures, legislators in the, the state capitol really are attuned to these issues. Um, but at the same time, you're right, that, that, that economic interest is always going to uh, be a problem. The, the, uh, the amount of progress that needs to be made to rectify this is going to, co- or it's going to cost a lot of money. And that is always going to be the challenge. And so, yes, I get industry and their concerns. And, to, and there is some value to consulting with them because you do get technical expertise. You do get actually some valuable input from their, their participation in the process. But they can't, from our opinion, be the overriding interest. They can't be the, you know, the one signing progress and signing uh, the effort to undo these injustices and these inequalities. Well said. Well said. I think that is a very, very well-worded and nuanced way of saying, like, we need to show it to the man. <laughs> right? Like, like, are you kidding me? Like, we understand, like, we, we have made a fair bit of progress already. I am usually really happy, I personally, as my views do not solely represent the Young Adults Fighting Tobacco Coalition. I have to say that legally. I personally love sh- <laughs> on the libs for um, for for not for for being very difficult about about basic things like something's wrong. We need to fix it. We need to work together, and it's stayed this wrong for this long because we've put blind trust into leaders and because we've forgotten that the, the people who are truly kingmakers are these countries uh, in this country don't, don't inhabit the halls of Congress. They uh, inhabit the boardrooms of Wall Street. And so I think when we take this angle of like, look, the only thing that's stopping a common sense and pro-people agenda is big money. It's big tobacco. It's it's uh, it's it's big everything. It, it is the goal of people who are looking at putting at putting in policy that goes and corrects these wrongs that we recognize that uh, you need to fight money mm-hmm. and get money out of this so that we can genuinely live up to Abraham Lincoln's vision of a government of the people, for the people, by the people. Amen. Now, back to big money. Um, <laughs> I, it's great. I, I'm so glad that, you know, you could be on here and, and we can just talk about this uh, as a very progressive organization like the Coalition for Clean Air. Um, and one of the things I saw, you mentioned a lot about uh, a very, a, a pretty interesting thing that, that I, I dab on liberals about a lot, about the way that, that media control and the manufacturing of consent work uh, when it comes to, let's say you're running a mass movement or you're trying to get something on the local ballot. So when you do some big political push like hey 
we're going to get we're going to make these polluters go and change uh, become solar or something or we going to we're going to switch out this this employer with a different employer that won't like poison our air and then what happens is that business will go on and they'll lobby and they'll lobby really hard and they'll even use media to try and turn that against you like what has recently happened with the uh menthol bans in Oakland and uh, Los Angeles could you kind of give uh, what would you say to like a, a newcomer to uh, civic engagement about how uh, big tobacco and the rest go and try and play with the media apparatus? You you bring up a, an important point, and I think it's important to kind of divide. So let's let's divide the issue into two subjects. So I, I know you're kind of going along more of the idea of like throwing money at advertisements, throwing money at organizations, case studies, things like that. And I think for that one, it's really a matter of considering the source. Uh, so for example, right now, and I know in the past the, the tobacco industry has done this, right now the oil industry is doing this, uh, with the, um, the administration, the Biden administration's Build Back Better plan, in which they will have uh, ads saying, do you want your country to be dependent on foreign oil? You know, this is the, 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 the chemical that powers us, yada, yada, yada. And to, to their credit-ish, I know that legally they have to do some disclosure, but you know, maybe they do a little bit more than, than what I was expecting. Um, those ads are by the American Petroleum Institute. Uh, oh, shoot. Yeah. And it's like, uh, and they run on TV a lot. And those are those are basically designed to do two things. One, they're supposed to get folks who are kind of on the fence and think, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I think I will call my Congress people. There's not, I don't think that there is a ton of people, just from my personal experience, who, who do that. You might get some labor unions calling in about it because, again, they're, you know, the one, specifically the ones uh, you know, that are tied to the oil industry, tied to refinery work, um, may have some interest in that. But I don't think you're going to get a huge, huge mass of people calling just saying, you know, pairing the, 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 the commercial stock reports. That also does, that, that same advertisement they oftentimes run on, on news programs also is designed to target elected officials and decision makers because they see that, they hear it, they think it, and they're concerned about it because it's a negative ad about an issue that they may have to vote. Uh, so that that's kind of how that works. You really, when you see something like that, you need to consider the source of this. The, the other issue, and I think one that needs to be and is increasingly being recognized, is how to effectively communicate with and, for lack of a better word, through journalists because a lot of times and i and i i'm not professing to be a journalist i don't have uh a journalistic background but i know that one of the things that they always emphasize is this notion of there being two sides to the story and there oftentimes are two sides of the story but not both sides are equally valid uh and you know i i i think a lot of times it is just to be clear. This is this is me just talking. I think a lot of times, a lot you know, if you treat both sides as having equal validity, 
there you you create a narrative well you know both sides are this way you know democrats are this way republicans are this way the whole system is off and and it doesn't actually put it, it evades putting responsibility for some of the decision making and policy making and just by saying well it's just those you know um i think that they're and, and to their credit i think the la times has done a is doing a very good job on climate and environmental issues right now uh, some of the reporters have done a, a fantastic job but traditionally how how it's been reported is well the environmentalists say this the industry says that uh what you do know. you think exactly exactly and it's um you know, that I think has been, unfortunately, in my personal opinion, a disservice to a lot of the policy debate in this country. Well, well, maybe whenever the L.A. Times runs, a, or, or at least used to run a piece, the, the environmentalists say blah, blah, and blah. Big Oil says blah, blah, and blah. I think they should have a little asterisk below. And it's like, historically... Uh, Dutch Royal Shell has had, uh, I think, either the paper just came up mm -hmm. or it was forced through congressional inquiry that Dutch Shell knew about climate change like mm -hmm. way back in the 70s. Yeah. And so they just built their oil rigs higher and didn't tell anyone because that would threaten their market shares. Mm -hmm. So maybe what needs to happen, you know, the, the more these talking points are put in the news and it's like, okay, environmentalists say this, big oil says this, big oil is known to lie to you and BS you and suppress information because they need to make money. Mm -hmm. The environmentalists just want a planet to live on for their children. <laughs> you decide. I think, I think all that, all that a little propaganda needs is just a, a little bit of context, and it usually crumbles apart. Same with yeah. fake tobacco. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Exactly. I mean, that was their that was their game back in the '90s, uh, in '80s and '90s during the you know the pre-master settlement era. I know there are of course shortcomings with that, uh, but when tobacco regulations were becoming more and more. Uh, of a pertinent issue in the country. I, I, I vaguely remember uh, there, there was a coziness uh, between uh, tobacco and some of the media sources, et cetera. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I, a lot, but at the same time, when you did have a journalist, when you did have a news source that actually reported the facts and, and, and realized or was able to get past this idea of just both sides, that uh, you actually saw action come out of that. Yeah, exactly. So uh, if I may, um, Chris, what would you recommend to, you know, new grassroots mm -hmm. activists, especially young or BIPOC individuals? Mm -hmm. um, what would you recommend to them um, in their fight for clean air? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, that's, that's an excellent question. I think the... I think one thing right off the bat is to not get overwhelmed. Uh, when we hear about 
climate, when we hear about pollution, it's usually these big, you know, issue, you know, this this huge, like the world, we're talking about global scales here. And that makes it feel like it is not in people's control. That is not something that they can engage with. It's beyond me. There's nothing I can do. Um, we're all doomed sort of a, a situation. I think what is important is that, you know, is to one, make sure you're not ignoring what's happening at the community level, whether that's your, your, your city, your state, even your country. The other thing is not to worry about being an expert. Uh, and what I mean by that is, a lot of times when, when people are going up there for speaking the first time, they compare themselves to other speakers. And they'll hear people who go up there who've done this for years and who, who, who can roll this stuff off the top of their head uh, to say, and, and compare themselves to that. Like, I can never you know, speak to that at that person's ability. Well, that's the wrong way of looking at it because I think it's actually more valuable when somebody who is not the usual suspects, when you don't have somebody like myself, for example, going to a committee meeting or going to an agency and actually saying, hey, this is what I deal with on my neighborhood. What are you guys doing about it? I think that in itself is very powerful uh, when, when you're having somebody, an actual constituent who's, who's again, doesn't make this their livelihood, uh, being involved. So the expectation is there not that you're not, the expectation is that you're not going to be there as an expert. The expectation is that you have to speak from your lived experience. You have to speak from your what you know personally. Uh, of course, you want to be truthful about it. You, you know, don't want necessarily to, you don't, you don't want to exaggerate, but you want to speak truthfully about what you've experienced and why this matters to you. And then uh, that, that, I think, goes a long way in helping out uh, in that experience and i think one of the, kind of look, looking back at the tobacco battles one of the most powerful testimonies was yeah we know tobacco smoke causes lung cancer we know it causes copd but when you talk to somebody who has experienced lung cancer when you talk to somebody who had to take care of a family member who experienced lung cancer i think that actually has a lot of weight to it too yeah absolutely i think uh I was going to comment on that point earlier, but for for any for anyone, it's easy to consider. Let's say now uh, the current example of how many people who are dead from from COVID. It's easy to consider all of that as just a, a statistic. It's hard mm -hmm. to. It's another thing to put a face on it, to put a person to one of those numbers. Similarly, another catastrophe we have in this country, frankly, is uh, it, it's inequality. It's uh, the, the result of redlining that we knew was there for years and never did anything about and then just made it illegal and then suddenly act surprised when we have uh, these lower living stand. Well, actually, I think, correct me if I'm wrong here, but isn't there a study by Harvard and in fact, an interactive map where you can enter in your zip code and the, I think, 
median income between your parents and Harvard would give you like a, this algorithm would give you like a 90% certain uh, prediction of what your uh, future income is going to be. Yeah, I had heard of that. Yes, uh, I'm going to have it linked on this episode. But like basically, we have pr- the conditions have pretty much made themselves so that like if you're just born in a diesel depth zone, you're at worst are going to die like a decade younger than one of like a wealthier person a few miles away from you in the same Mm -hmm. town and on top of that you're never ever ever going to make more money than that unless you like fall into a bush and then get hired at a bank (laughs) right like it feels so we like i don't know maybe Maybe I'm just built different, but like this is what I just understand the real world to be because I live in the real world. I have like family who aren't like blinded by this crazy idealist American exceptionalism. Like I I, I just understand that like the conditions that you have on people shape people. Mm-hmm. Right? So like if we if we have all of these conditions now, like, no kidding, we're going to have these terrible outcomes. The point, though, is that when you put a face to it and when you at least do something, at least do anything for it in your community, you can make a difference. You know, I was inspired today by, oh, I'm going to feel terrible now. I have to look up his name. Uh, he was the guy who was the governor of Minnesota in the 90s, the Green Party guy, mm. Mr. Ventura. Okay. Okay. Like, you know, I feel yeah. I feel inspired by that guy. You know, Surfer Ventura. He Jesse, became, yeah. Like, you know, he was with, he was affiliated with no party, but Reform Party. He went like, you know what? I'm going to make Minnesota great. And then he did it. Or then he at least tried to do those changes for a better, for a safer, for a stronger Minnesota. And then he did it. We can do that here too. Anyone listening can do that for their home. And they can start by changing conditions to make better outcomes for people. And that that's really how you do it. Mm-hmm. One of the most important things I've had to learn um, is that a lot of times the the decision makers are yes they're 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 important because they're the ones that have the vote they're the ones that implement the law but I think that there's also for for the active activists the advocates who have been involved they do have an effect on policy I mean I I, I think they are really it's really important for them to be engaged because like for example they're in, in the south coast air quality management district there is a refiner a rule on refineries that's coming up in november mm-hmm. and yeah there have been compromises to it the rule could be a lot stronger than what it was but it could have also been a lot worse had it not been for the the environmental and public health advocates who have been that were part of that process um so sure you can say well, the rule could have been stronger. Of course, it could have been stronger. I, I think I, we would have liked the rule to be stronger, but at the same time, it could have been a hell of a lot worse. You know, there, there's an old 
saying in the political world, and that is, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Uh, yeah. You always want to be at the table. <laughs> right. And even even if, let's say you're you're with an organization that's like, no, you know, we want to do community activism. We want to. We don't want to do the inside game. We're outsiders. That's fine. We need, you know, there needs to be that outside pressure that's not going to play by the rules uh, and still call the call out accountability. I know they, they like to use the, the phrase respectability politics. Um, I, I think you need both sides of the point. You need the advocates agitating on the outside, and you need the people working on the inside. It's 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 really you, you need both pressure points. Very nicely said. That reminds me of a book I read. Do you want to hear me go off on a tangent for a second? Sure. You're the host. Uh, well, hey, you're the guest. <laughs> so there is a book. Let me I I gave it to my little cousin because he he needs to uh, I, I've been sending him political material to read to, to help open up his mind. You've been conditioning him, Johnny. Huh? <laughs> he came to me first. He's like, "Hey, Johnny, I hear um, I hear you have very unorthodox and unpopular views." And he's like, "My little cousin from West Virginia." So we're like, "Oh boy," uh, talking to his parents, and I was like, "Oh yeah." Ever since he went to college, he's quite radical. And then I like talked to him, and he's just like a Bernie supporter. And I was like, "Oh okay, you're mm -hmm. fine." Here, let me give you uh, the uh, collected works of Vladimir Lenin. You know, because <laughs> like that's what you do to your little buddy cousin, because you know he deserves that. Because that's what big cousins do. But um, there's a book called "Building as a Commune" by George uh, uh, Chicariello Mayer. Uh, it's about Venezuela, and essentially. Um, you know, the, the Chavistas got into power and they would go and they do these reforms. They pass the land reform. They're doing stuff about uh, communal and social housing. Uh, there's nationalized industries and stuff. But you but but you can't build a commune or a cooperative enterprise or council housing out of edict or out of legislation you can't just have some top heavy you can't you can't change society from the better just from the inside or just from the heights of society you need cooperation among the lower parts of it and among the masses and among people outside of it to build something better And I really like that, that you got at that. Like as much as you need people in the system, I would say like having a one person in parliament is, is I would say less than even a single person out on the street waving signs and giving people stickers, you know? Hmm. The, the point is that Anyone from any walk of life should be able to go and and use their freedom of speech and democratic rights to go and agitate for something better. And there's really room for everyone on that table, because if they're not, as you said, they're on the menu. Mm -hmm. 
What, was that a was that a proper distraction, uh, Mr. <laughs> hey, uh, it's all good. It's all good. So yeah, if you want to like make something better, you know, it, it takes everyone. And I think that I think I'm I'm really thankful that you touched up on that. Yeah, we uh we all gotta do our part to uh, to do things. Um, we're all responsible for, you know, this world, and I think you know it's it's our job. All right, cool, Chelsea. Right. I've hi- I've highlighted this this I, part. I link see it, the link nice... it to your discussion about SimCity. That <laughs> nice little note there. Yeah. So I one of our questions. Just, you know, for funsies, we always like to know these things. But if you were governor and had a progressive coalition in the state legislature, uh, how would you implement the platform you're on? So that is a very interesting question. Uh, and I think it actually it can, can lead to an interesting discussion about the state of of politics in California because so for the, for those that have have really been interested that though they you know who are interested in climate issues there was actually a very a rather ambitious climate bill ambitious climate bill that uh, failed or did not get enough votes to pass the state senate this year that was uh, AB thirteen ninety five uh, and basically that bill what it would do is it would have required I believe 90 to 95 percent emission reductions by 2045, as well as direct state agencies to figure out how to implement it. Um, there, there were some provisions that not everybody in the environmental community were happy about. And I want to recognize and, and, and rec, you know, not brush that open, uh, particularly as it relates to carbon capture. Uh, the legislature, legislators that were sponsoring the legislation said, well, this basically creates a system of regulating it. This, rather than you know being able to outright ban it, it uh, there was so there wasn't a unanimous support for uh, this bill. However, the a big part of the environmental community, the bulk of it, were, were, were definitely in support of it. Uh, but ultimately, at the end of the day, it did not pass. And um, so, if we were to have a legislature that was progressive and the governor myself or a governor who, who was also progressive. I think the important thing is really, so California has done a very good job of setting goalposts, but it's actually meeting those standards, meeting those commitments in the future. So they will say, for example, the state will commit itself to reducing greenhouse gas emissions by X amount. Um, the, the, the senator who I work for actually, her bill set a requirement to meet 1990 levels of greenhouse gas emissions by 2020. And we actually have met that goal. Uh, but oh, what's wonderful. going to be more, yeah, what's going to be more difficult is meeting the future goals uh, that were laid out in regulation, et cetera. Um, so I think being able to show and being able to actually plan out and implement some of these long-term big picture strategies so that it's that we're not just all talking on this, that we're actually doing it, actually achieving the emission reductions. 
as well as making sure we're doing it in a way that does not harm disadvantaged and vulnerable communities, low income earners, et cetera, uh, because that always needs to be part of the equation. I, I think there is also an important point, and again, this gets kind of into the broader labor issue, that when you do have uh, communities that are reliant on polluting infrastructure, polluting job economies, like, you know, jobs at the refineries, jobs at the ports, things like that, those folks, I will say, are rightfully concerned. You know, they, they, you know, this is a job they know. This is a, you know, they, this is a job that provides them uh, security. And I have family who works in the oil industry. I have family that works on the docks. Um, I get why they would be concerned about it. But how do you do this in a way that does not cause harm to them and their community? That is really going to be a huge challenge if we're going to be, that needs to be addressed, if we're going to be uh, uh, truthfully and honestly implementing and working towards these long-term commitments. So I think it's really figuring out, if, I, if, if, if it were just solely up to me, it would be implementation. How do we solve these issues? How do we address these issues between now and whatever we've committed to in the future? Well said. I think that's a lot of the necessary nuance that we need. Like, you know, I, I, uh, I'm so glad that we have you on, you know, you're definitely the adult in the room who, who, who is here and, and has to convey as like, look, this is a, this is like pulling teeth. This is the political process and this is the political process in America. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's like, uh, pulling teeth without sedative. Yeah. Yeah. And, oh, go ahead. Yeah, you you just you've been able to to bring that up in such a nuanced way because you know exactly what my answer would be in any <laughs> of these situations. So it's wonderful. I'm glad you've such a level head on this. It's uh, well, like, like I said, sometimes you need folks who just get in there and shake things up and shake people up and. I, I have not always been as uh, nuanced either in my current position or uh, previously. I know that there is some video of me uh, in the South Coast AQMD uh, video archives of being a little bit less nuanced, shall we say, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, about, about a refinery issue. But that's what happens when you inter uh, stop a three-year rulemaking process for a voluntary letter from the refineries. Um, yeah, uh, but in any case, in any case, that, I, we can go into that if you want to. But that—that's that was a fun one. Yeah. Um, but basically, uh, yeah, and you 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 do need to sometimes just call it out. You know, you need to point out that no, this is wrong. What you guys are doing is not right. What a what a what a wonderful way of saying that. You know, <laughs> you know. I have to say, one day, one day, very soon, I hope, when I actually have the means and like the uh, will be settled down to like partake in politics, I I cannot wait to go, and quote be the guy who shakes up stuff a bit. I, I, can't wait to, I, I can't wait to do that for my friends and family. I can't wait to go and have kids and and have them go to school. And it's like, oh, 
you're you're the the mayoral candidate's daughter and then <laughs> you get beat up yeah but you know what Mr. Chavez, your your words are so refreshing. I'm going to keep to that. Sometimes you just got to shake it up a little bit. I'm going to yeah. take that to heart. Now, uh, when back when we e-met, mm-hmm. um, I remember you were talking about uh, how you were doing a petition in front of a committee talking. I think it was uh, a, an energy industry was I think doing some doing something. It was consultating with Long Beach, and you basically had to write to them. And it's like, look, here's why we don't like you. You 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 have you've tested our community trust a lot, and and so that's definitely different than the the little tangent you just started to go on. So would you like to talk about the the video? What yes. So. Back in 2019, uh, back in 2019, September 2019, actually okay. September 6, 2019. Okay. <laughs> date that lives in like personal memory base forever. So what what happened was back. So actually, let's go back even further. 2015, there was oh, an ex- okay. there was an explosion at a refinery in the city of Torrance, a Torrance refinery. Jesus. Okay. And it's refineries for one of their processes needs to use a very strong acid for uh, a process called alkalination. And basically there are two ways that they can do this. They can either use sulfuric acid, which is the most common way, mm-hmm. or they can use a type of acid called hydrofluoric acid. Okay. And hydrofluoric acid is extremely dangerous. Both acids aren't great, certainly. But hydrofluoric acid is extremely dangerous because it basically turns into a vapor at standard air and pressure. Um, So when this explosion in 2015 happened, uh, the part that exploded nearly landed on the modified hydrofluoric acid tank. And we're talking within a few feet. Oh and, yeah, and this was something that was widely reported on back then. So after that point, under pressure from the community, the South Coast Air Quality Management District started a rulemaking process to actually phase it out or ban it or do do something about the acid. So they went through this long process, and there are two refineries. The only two refineries that actually use this acid in California are the Torrance Refinery and a refinery in Wilmington. Um, so they go through this whole process and about a month or two before they're actually supposed to vote on it, uh, we get this notice that, Hey, there's going to be uh, a vote on a voluntary proffer letter, which is a like proactive offer letter from the refineries for safety enhancements, voluntary safety enhancements for this asset. Now, if this rule was going in the direction it may have been where, where it was going to be more like what the refineries were kind of like doing safety enhancements. Okay. I, I get that. But mm-hmm. basically what the refineries were able to do within about a week was to stop a rulemaking process that had been underway for a few years was about to be voted on in a couple of months and actually get what they wanted, which was this voluntary uh, letter offering safety without any environmental review, by the way. Oh. Uh, so it's like, 
wait a minute, this is not right. You're bypassing the process. We're not going through any sort of you know, very minimal public review. Um, and on top of it, it was the very same meeting where they voted on for a, a community emission reduction plans for a community that included that refi- one of those refineries. So it's like, yeah, it was, uh, it was, uh, it was not a fun meet. <laughs> oh my God. Well, I'm sorry. I'm still trying to like piece that all together. That's like, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to advise uh, our listeners to like go and like skip through that and continue listening to it. Maybe put it on loop. Yeah. <laughs> That's really scummy. Yeah. So, okay, again, correct me if I'm wrong. So oil company goes, they, there was this really bad explosion. And when you have these explosions, they got to put poison on the explosions to minimize the explosion. And then the poison goes and evaporates into the air. So everyone's breathing it, but they aren't being exploded. So not quite. So there is okay. a there is a, a process at this refinery, mm-hmm. at these two refineries, that uses a strong acid. Refinery had an explosion, almost caused that strong acid to be released. And the okay. goal was to try to ban or phase out or, or restrict the use of that strong acid. But mm-hmm. instead, the refineries were able to say, no, instead... We're going to do water curtains to block it from expanding outside our facility. Yeah. You know, I have to say, I have to say that first, my views do not fully or wholly represent (laughs) the Young Adults (laughs) Fighting Tobacco Organization. But oh my God, if, if there's <laughs> ever been a, a, a reason to go like, hey, hey, the energy industry, yeah, that's public. Uh, that, that's just public material now. Mm-hmm. No, that, that's just owned. That, that's just owned by the state now. Y'all, y'all can't. Y- y'all have played a bit too much with poison and explosions now. You need sure. to stop. I, I think uh, that's a very good argument for it. The... <laughs> I, I will say the one silver lining that has come out of recent events, not necessarily that specifically, but the one silver lining that we do have is that the, the membership on that board has improved considerably over the last four years. Uh, you know, you have more community-minded, I would even argue more progressive-minded folks who are on that board. Uh, but it's still close. It's still a challenge. And um, I would argue it is still slightly uh, tilted, is still tilted towards industry, is still tilted towards uh, moneyed interests, so to say. But it is getting better and hopefully, knock on every piece of wood you can find, yes, uh, sir. it will be better uh, within the next couple of years. Fair enough. That's understandable. Yeah. You yeah. know, and again, it's like what you said. You know, they they have all of this money, big businesses, all of this cash mm-hmm. to to put into this. We we don't have cash, but man, can we be loud? <laughs> man, can we get people who are there who are dedicated, who feel strongly about what they do, 
and uh, and at least have the time to go and phone zap and pick it. That's something. That's something mm-hmm. that oil will never have, nor mm-hmm. will big tobacco have either. I don't see a lot of like lung cancer enthusiasts going and <laughs> holding rallies, marching. What? They'd run out of breath. They've damaged their lungs so much. Yeah. You know? what, what, when the Tobacco Research Institute or whatever their their organization they propped up back then uh, was uh, de- you know, was uh, gotten rid of, that was all. That was a good thing. So, <laughs> right. Oh my goodness. You know, it's. Uh, Man, I'm just full of quotes today. I'm like mentally combing over all the interesting stuff that I've read the last week. But so, um, are, are so you, yeah, you go. I was gonna say so. One other fun, fun little fact uh, for specifically for tobacco advocates. So in the state, the state legislature, they you know they have different committees, just like the federal government, the federal legislature right. does. The the committee that regulates tobacco is the quote unquote government organization committee. Government organization committee. So most of them have like the education committee, the transportation committee, okay, uh, governance and finance. But anything tobacco related would likely go to public health, of course, but also government organization. And government organization tends to uh, get the most amount of like they get a lot of political donations there, and it's uh, uh, you also find very some very moderate, uh, business friendly uh, members on that committee. So, if there's anything you want to pay attention to when it comes to tobacco uh, laws in the state, it's going to go, it's, it will likely have to go through government organization at this point. Oh, well, you know, that that's another. Wow. Yeah. It's also known as the sin committee because it also deals with alcohol, gambling, stuff like yeah. that. Which, again, are also areas that you can just funnel money through to, to buy the vote. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. You know, Mr. Chavez, <laughs> I've worked in tobacco control for the last year now. You want to hear something? Sure. Every time I get on this podcast and I talk about big tobacco and I talk about just, you know, going up against big business to protect the rights of the little man and to make sure that everyone has a chance and that no one is left behind. Mm -hmm. Every time I get on this program with, with an expert. I'm blown away by more scummy crap that big tobacco does. Oh my God, it's terrible. They have found every single way to be horrible. It's like, man, it's impressive. Man, it's, you know, what? But, you know, this only shores up my commitment. You know, I, like, who am I fighting for? I'm fighting for me. I'm a former addict i'm fighting for my family we have a lot of uh people who suffer from substance abuse in my family i'm fighting for my siblings for for all of that mm-hmm. who is the opposition fighting for they're fighting for money 
They're fighting for their shareholders. And you know, that that fills me with so much inspiration. Because I'm actually fighting for something that, that's like meaningful. That is another thing I think uh, our younger listeners should hear. You know? Yeah. Definitely. Man. All right. So before I get you into any more trouble, uh, Mr. Chavez, <laughs> I know we, we ran you through the ringer on this one. This is such a... Yeah, this is fun. Yeah. We're, we're, uh, we're really happy to, to have you on today. Um, what else would you like to say to the program uh, before we close? Yeah, no, I... And it kind of ties back to what I was saying earlier, and I think it ties back to what you were saying as well uh, in terms of, like, what you're fighting for. So, like, for me, when I was growing up, I had asthma as a kid. Um, my cousin who lived about half a mile away from me also had asthma. Um, we both grew up in the same neighborhood, grew up by the same freeways. Uh, he had it a bit worse than I did, uh, so certain, and he still relies on the rescue inhaler from time to time. Uh, I fortunately have not had a asthma episode in a long time, but um, no, I think I think what your your point is when you're talking about your own personal experiences and challenges. Again, it just emphasizes the point that you need your story is uniquely powerful because it is your story. You're the expert on your life, and sure, you can you know it's good to have a scientific background. It's good to be able to quote and throw facts around. But when you're able to connect decision to what, how it's actually going to impact you, I think that's really what is uh, important because that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where you actually see when law has an effect, when regulations has an effect on somebody's life. Um, so yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right on that. And, and really being able to understand what you're fighting for. Um, a lot of a lot of times where people get involved with this, and, and I'll speak for myself too. I mean, it's like you're you're a, you know people who get involved in politics. They think, oh, you know, they think election cycles, they think elected officials, they think um, running for office in the future. All that great. If that is what your motivation is, you need to recognize that. But if your motivation is actually to cause change, is to create change, is to improve things. I think that is what people need to hold on to is, is really as is, is the primary motivation of what they're doing because it shouldn't be, a, you know, policy is not necessarily a means to the end. It is the end itself. Implementation is the end itself. Um, the politics is just the road how you get there. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think that's that, if anything, it's that. I do want to touch briefly, really quickly, though, uh, in, in terms of like the other side. Um, yes. And again, I, I think maybe that is that is really a, can get into some touchy philosophical issues because we can, you know, I think either you know to anti-tobacco activists, clean air advocates uh, can easily point out, look, we're doing this for public health, we're doing this for for uh, the climate, we're doing this for uh, to to bring you know to to stick it to a multi-billion-dollar industry. All that is good, and all that is true. But when you're dealing with the other side, when you're actually talking to 
the oil industry lobbyist that's in the meeting with you. And if you're, when you're actually, you know, have to deal with the employees who work at the refinery, um, perhaps maybe a little bit less so on the tobacco side, although they, I mean, they have employees too. I don't know if they're unionized or not. I think they are actually. But in any case, again, I, I think there is, it's very hard to come at those folks and say, we want to do this because they're automatically going to say, well, what about my job? I think right. being able to understand and, and, and not dismiss that concern is always going to be important. That doesn't mean you cede the argument to them. That doesn't mean you agree with them or that you compromise based just off of that. It's really, but you, I think there is, there is value. And, and when you're dealing with elected officials, an expectation like, okay, if we do this and this happens, how do you respond? Why, you know, how, how does this issue get resolved out? I think that is something that anybody who gets involved with advocacy, certainly, especially those who are playing the quote unquote inside game, that's something that's always going to be needed that needs to be on their mind and how do you diffuse that argument? How do you sympathize with them, empathize with them without compromising yourself? And I think if you're playing the outside game, if you're doing the community organizing, doing the agitation, um, being able to at least understand that argument and not dismiss it out of hand, I think is, an, is, is a benefit. There's, there's a, a, a value to that. Yeah, I can see that. Like, mm-hmm. like, don't, don't, uh, I kind of had this conversation, uh, last time I was in West Virginia, uh, with my West Virginia family, kind of talking about, uh, my, my, my spicy takes on, uh, U.S. military intervention. And, and like, we're talking, I was like, yeah, the, uh, and like a lot of my family are vets and it's like, yeah, like the, the, the government does like a lot of crazy stuff. It spends all of this money we can be investing back in America. And I was like, well, I mean, and then like, uh, what, what I get in response is, and I was like, well, we have these amazing medical programs that we're offering to people throughout the world. And it's also the largest employer in the United States. And it's like, well, yes, they're the largest employer because they killed off all of their competition. Mm-hmm. Because, like, we have people who will, like, be involved and be pro-military because that's really the only option they have. Well, they, the only option a lot of people have had for a free education, subsidized housing, mm-hmm. and a job that makes pretty good figures. Right. Right. So like, yeah, I think like, like don't take any stupid ultra positions. I think that's what you're meaning. Right. Like, 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 like don't, don't take like have like firm principles, but don't apply them in such a rigid dogmatic way that you go and alienate, alienate people. The point is that, um, at the very least, if there is pushback to what you feel or how you view things, it's like, fine, whatever. There's room for you too, though. Yeah. Like, if there, there's an oil worker, and I was like, fine, you know what? 
we're going to have your, we're going to negotiate with your union and then um, we'll have the city pay for whatever and then you can get a different job. Something like that. Yeah. Like there is another way and there is the other option, but you got to face it frankly and you don't get to, to turn people off with, with stupid ultra points. Yeah, and, and and to be clear, I don't think I don't think that is should be taken as something like to discourage people from wanting to be bold, you know, pushing the envelope. You you should always want to start off without being you you don't want to start off being in a position to compromise automatically. Um so yeah, shoot for the moon, but recognize the, that you know when you're trying to get something through, you don't want to your, you don't want to make yourself irrelevant in that discussion. Um, and it, it makes your argument all the more powerful when you're able to respond to those criticisms, respond to those opposition points in a meaningful and constructive way. What One yeah. thing I would note also on that, just one last final point on that, uh, is that actually in the labor community, in the, in, in the labor unions, uh, a lot of them have, have developed or this idea, this notion of a just transition. Basically, as we transition away from fossil fuels, we transition away from a harmful economy, that you do it in a way that addresses those impacts. Uh, right. It's not necessarily a, a, a easy out-of-the-can solution or out-of-the-box solution that you can, can set up. Uh, it's going to take a lot of it would take a lot of stakeholder collaboration, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, listening, government listening to people who are in that and supporting them. Um, but I think that framework uh, could help bridge where communities might be impacted by the transition away from fossil fuels, or even if you want to look at tobacco, if you, know, if you have a community that's dependent on tobacco, that could be uh, a model there as well. You, you always have to take these public health issues as just that, public health issues. Yeah. yeah. You, you yeah. can't, you can't. I promise I was going to close this down. Here's another. Uh, are you ready for part two of <laughs> shits on the libs? <laughs> okay. It's sort of okay. And this is going to be really offensive to some people. Okay. Are you all ready? Fire away. You cannot fully, you cannot take away the very real class component to race issues mm-hmm. and vice versa. You you can't go and be well, okay, think about it like this. So uh, Mr. Sanders was running for president in twenty sixteen. Uh, there were a bunch of other Democrats running and he and all of his other candidates who, who are degrees upon degrees upon degrees to the right of him get asked questions like, oh, what will blah, blah, blah do for minority groups? And they give like these canned answers. And then Bernie just goes and gives them like, look, I'm for a universal health care platform. 
minority groups are like disproport are like even disproportionately worse off. If I do the same policy that I've been talking about since I started campaigning, people of a certain of whatever minority group are going to be doing disproportionately well because we're handling a social ill as a social ill and then it, it's its issue with class or race as both of these are connected get advanced like you can't just have here i think i explained it well enough do you understand what i get at yeah 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 like it, like i'm talking about like when i hold positions like we need to make a more just economy when it comes to ecology when it comes mm -hmm. to making a green earth like that that doesn't at all contrast with my idea of a of, of going back to something more like a full employment economy yeah like like or like how my my religious beliefs like you know my my catholicism doesn't at all clash with my uh political views because like having a positive responsibility to be good to other people goes hand in hand with having a more compassionate, just society. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, also as a uh, former 12 year veteran of Catholic school. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, no, I, I, I hear you on that. And actually I think you bring up an interesting point about the full employment economy and, and all, and what you're talking about, you know, the uh, a rising tide lifting all boats. Yeah. Um, the, so with this refinery regulation in South Coast AQMD, South Coast Air Quality Management District, um, there was a socioeconomic report done about the potential impacts, the economic impacts of this regulation. And here the refineries have been saying that, oh, this is going to cause job losses. This is going to cost us billions of dollars, yeah, on and on and on. Well, the socioeconomic impact report came out and said, actually, yes, it might be expensive to implement, but we're also going to have job gains because of the construction associated with building the control technology. We're going to have less sick days because of people not getting asthma attacks or getting COPD attacks or things like that. And they, you know, it's like, yeah, it's going to be money, but it's going to be worth it in the end because of the savings in healthcare costs over the long term. And of right. course, you're dealing with improved quality of life. You're dealing with improved health. Um, so yeah, I mean, you you got to take yes, the, the upfront cost is the sticker shock is always a challenge. Is always going to be a valid concern, but. At the end of the day, if this is going to do something that's going to improve public health, it's going to do improve quality of life, it's going to make, make people live longer, and it's going to create more jobs in the long run, let's right. do it. Right. Like, we, we've all played SimCity here. <laughs> we all get scared when we're putting down our first commercial in, uh, district, realizing how much that costs, mm -hmm. and then you unpause the game and wait for three turns. And then you have all your money back because commercial yeah. districts print money. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, yeah, it's exactly like that. We, we can't, we have all of these really, really 
corporatist centric, uh, a very a very narrow minded understanding of how we we make local economies and how we have governing bodies go and kind of move some stuff around to facilitate economic development. You can't like like you don't just get wealth in a community from having a big factory there. You go and you facilitate the conditions to make a a a resilient economy, one that meets certain goals, one that has competition one that has the social membrane already there to then go and build upward. Like Mm -hmm. you can't have truck drivers without roads or without mechanics and all of that. We we have to, I I think before anyone makes any decision off of, off of sticker shock and off of fear mongering that, uh, uh, these big businesses make one, one mm-hmm. also has to to think of this like sim city right it's all about that long term right like i i personally like like again when you put it like that when you put even an ounce of critical thinking to it you're like wow this actually makes sense mm-hmm. i've been deceived by wealthy people <laughs> but it's also hard when they're like hitting you over the head with it. Yeah. So, you know, get, get smart, California. You got this. <laughs> that, that's the hope I have for humanity. Yeah. Okay. Well, that was a very long, uh, closing bit. So, um, I guess unless you have like one last and like sincerely last thing to add. I think I'm good for the order. Wonderful. In that case, thank you so much for being on here, Mr. Chavez. Yeah. Yeah. Thank no, you happy, for being here. Happy to, to participate. And meet, uh, I know we've met by email, but certainly also happy to meet Chelsea in this and uh, Jen a little bit earlier too. Hey, thank you so much. Thank you for repping the Coalition for Clean Air. Um, We are going to have this up uh, for your event on Wednesday. Oh, cool, cool, cool. Awesome. Yeah. So we'll we'll have all of that worked out. So yet again, thank you so much for appearing on the program, and you stay safe. Very very quickly, do I mention the event? Yeah, add it in. I'll add it. Okay, cool. Yeah, so... Uh, California Clean Air Day uh, is coming up on October 6th, or actually, let's say, since we, you're adding it in. Um, so California Clean Air Day is on October 6th, uh, Wednesday. Um, and basically what it is, is it's, an, it's an opportunity to get people involved, just very easy ways to reduce air pollution. Uh, we have the, the Clean Air Pledge, which people can sign up and, and take you know, specific strategies all the way ranging from biking or walking instead of driving to they want to do purchasing an electric car. Uh, we actually have had a few folks do that. Of course, we know that's not available to everybody. Um, but, you know, it's just, again, it's a way to engage folks and engage the community in, in easy but meaningful ways to reduce pollution. Uh, so if you want to find out more, it is at cleanairday.org. You can also follow us on or follow Clean Air Day uh, on uh, Twitter, Facebook, 
and Instagram. Wonderful. Thank you for having us. Uh, well, thank you for being on here. Gladly, gladly. Thank you so much, and thank you for being so generous with your time. All right. Stay safe out there. All right. Bye. for listening this podcast is made possible through listeners like you during this episode we got to talk to with deputy policy director chris chavez with the coalition for clean air in la uh we can't wait to discuss even more issues with you all in the future and we'll see you next time thanks again for listening to our gen green podcast powered by yaft also we have some social media on facebook and instagram Definitely follow and connect with us there for more updates and other show-related media. And finally, YAFT is recruiting, so contact us at any time at our email about joining via yaft at healthcloud.org. Thank you.